Thank you. Good morning. My name is Anne Teese, and I have the privilege to read the gospel this morning. I'll be reading from John 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we come this morning and we trust in your wisdom and in your goodness. We know you have a very specific purpose and plan for your word not just for us as a congregation, but for each and every individual in this room and listening online. Father, we pray that you would accomplish your purpose in our hearts this morning through the power of your word and the intervention of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So until fairly recently... Uh, when I would go to the movie theater, I would enjoy the movie, and at the end of the movie, the credits would start to roll, and I would stand up and, you know, brush the popcorn off and leave. You know, beat the crowd to the parking lot. Marvel changed all of that for me. <laughs> if you don't know, Marvel has these kind of hidden end credit or sometimes mid-credit scenes that are sometimes cute and fun. Sometimes they're actually important to knowing what's coming next in the Marvel superhero storyline. And there are these extra, you know, uh, what do they call them? Post-credit scenes. Sometimes there's one. Sometimes there's actually two post-credit scenes. That's what we get in John chapter 21 today. John chapter 20 could have ended the book, and it would have been a great ending. At the end of John chapter 20, Jesus says, or I'm sorry, uh, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the end of John chapter 20. That's a great place to end the book. Fade to black, go on to the next movie. 
But John doesn't end there. He includes John chapter 21 in these two scenes that we had read this morning. Not just because they're interesting stories about what Jesus did, but because they give us insight into what's coming next in the church. The passage teaches us a lot about what's coming next, the church's mission, the church's ministry. But we're not approaching John chapter 21 this morning and asking, what does this teach us about the church? Instead, what I'd like us to do is approach John chapter 21 and ask, what do we learn about Jesus? And how does what we learn about Jesus shape our, the church's, mission and ministry? Because the church's mission and ministry grows directly out of Jesus' person, his character, his mission, and his ministry. So in John chapter 21, what do we see? Well, first, we see Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. John uses the word reveal three times. The NIV translates it appear, and one time it randomly translates it, this is how it happened. Uh, But it's the same word used all three times, and the word is revealed. Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. He made himself visible. He made himself known to his disciples. When, when you read the story, the first part of it, you got to wonder, when did they start to suspect that maybe it was Jesus on the shore? I mean, when he told them to throw their nets onto the right side of the boat, uh, that kind of echoes something Jesus had done earlier in their ministry, when they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. Earlier, Jesus had told them, go out into the deep water and try again. And they had a miraculous catch of fish. So you wonder, when they hear someone, maybe hidden in the fog of the morning, they didn't recognize, say, try again, they're wondering, all right, this sounds vaguely familiar. And then they pull in so many fish that the boat is almost overwhelmed, and John, the beloved disciple, says, that's it. That's the Lord. And Peter who was fishing half-naked, throws his clothes on to jump in the water. Don't get that, but that's what it says. And goes to see Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples here. But it's not just here. This is just pointing us to and reminding us of a larger truth. That God shows himself to us And if he did not reveal himself to us, we would be utterly lost. There is no discovering God or stumbling upon God unless he reveals himself. And Jesus did. God has revealed himself in his creation. So on a beautiful day, go take a walk in the woods Watch the spiders and the ants. Observe the stars. You're watching God's handiwork. He is putting himself on display in his created order. But he's also revealed himself through the prophets, through his written word, and first and foremost, through the incarnate word, Jesus. 
God has revealed himself to us, his disciples, and we, the church, are stewards of that revelation. In Paul's letter, he will use the word mystery repeatedly. Romans, 1 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, to, to describe what was hidden, God's plans, God's purposes, but has now been revealed. It was a secret, but now it's an open secret. And so we, the church, God has revealed himself to us, and we have the task, the privilege, of pointing people to Jesus. That is our main function, pointing people to Jesus. I recently read the story of kind of Barnes and Noble and how they were on the precipice of completely going out of business. A new CEO came in and said, we're doing this all wrong. If you remember going into Barnes and Nobles maybe 10, 15 years ago, the place was well, it had books, but it also was selling backpacks and water bottles and candy and all kinds of calendars and games. And He said, no, 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 we're getting back to our mission. Our mission is books. Get rid of all that other stuff and sell books. And he brought them back from the brink of closure. Jesus isn't just one of our messages, He is the sum total of our message as the church of Jesus Christ. If our message isn't Jesus, frankly, we don't have anything to say. If our message is just a political plan or a social agenda, well, the world doesn't need us. The world needs us to be pointing them to Jesus. Jesus has revealed himself to us, and we are stewards of this open secret, and we say, come and find Jesus. First thing, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, so we point people to Jesus. Secondly, the risen Jesus serves his disciples. Throughout the Gospels, we've seen Jesus' humility on display, right? He spends time with children. He spends time with the sick, with the outcast, with the downtrodden. He washes his disciples' feet. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. But now, here is Jesus, the risen Lord, conqueror of death, defeater of hell, And at the same time, Jesus, the short order cook. Jesus, the grill master. There he is on the beach cooking breakfast for his disciples. Serving again, still. See, for Jesus, humility and service weren't just gimmicks. They weren't just Instagram moments. Not just a strategy to get people to like you so they'll follow you. It's deeply who he is and so who we are called to be. Jesus, in his his humble service, blazes a trail for his followers. 
I feel incredibly privileged to have seen this not just in Jesus, but here at the church. Bob's not in the service this morning. He's in the membership class. So I can say this, and if any of you tell him I said this, I will deny it. But he is an incredible example of a servant leader. He serves his staff. He does not just use his staff. He serves his staff. Modeling how Jesus served those who were under him. Leaders, and there's many leaders in here, whether you lead in business or in the classroom, in an educational environment or some other way, or in your home, serve those that are under you. Don't just use those that are under you. Follow Jesus' example. And as a church who follows Jesus, we ought to be serving the world Too often, the church throughout history has used its leverage, its power, its influence to fight for its own rights, to establish its own interests. And there is room for that, knowing that a healthy, thriving church is good for society. But we are so much better when we're using our power and our influence to serve the world as Jesus did to serve our communities. Jesus, the risen Lord, serves his disciples, and so we follow Jesus and serve the world. The third thing that we see in this, these post-credit stories is that Jesus prospers his church. The disciples, there were seven of them, had been out fishing all night, and they hadn't caught a thing. That's us when we labor in our own power and our own intelligence. But Jesus says, come and throw on the other side of the boat. And they're blessed with an amazing catch of fish. 153 fish is oddly specific, isn't it? It's kind of, okay, 153 fish. That has led to some really entertaining speculation on why 153. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, argued that in antiquity, mariners understood that there was 153 species of fish. And so what John is trying to communicate here is that like they caught all the fish, the church will catch all the tribes and nations. Problem is there's way more than 153 different species of fish, and even the ancient world knew that. So I don't know where Jerome was going with that. (laughs) Others have gotten really bizarre, and they assign numbers to all the Greek or Hebrew letters of the alphabet, and then you add them up, and you get a number. So if you do that to the Greek alphabet, you can get Simon. 153, when you do all kinds of weird things, ends up with Simon. (laughs) Or... Or the church of love. Okay, that's really cool, but was that what John was doing? My favorite is from Cyril of Alexandria. 
He said the 153 stands for 100 pagans, 50 Jews, and the Trinity. Life is too short. I did not investigate why he thought that or why he thought that mattered. But there it is. Now, I think it simply represents extreme abundance of blessing from the one who sends good gifts. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus had called his disciples and said, you're fishers, I'm going to make you fishers of men. This is a great kind of bookend to that. And when I send you out to be fishers of men, you will catch men. The church will prosper. I will grow it. Not you. You had empty nets. Me. I'll do this thing. Notice what he says to Peter. Feed my sheep. Not grow my church. It's very instructive. You know, fads come and go. We are now like three weeks into the baseball season, and I haven't mentioned baseball yet. You knew it wasn't going to last. There's fads in baseball. If you go back 2016, 2017, everybody was talking about launch angle from the bat. And if you can increase and get the right launch angle, you're hit more home runs, and it works. 2000, I think it was 22, set the record for the most home runs ever hit in Major League Baseball. Also, one of the lowest batting averages across baseball, more infield pop flies, and more strikeouts. Pitchers adjusted. And they changed the baseball. Uh, it was a fad. In 2022, the person who was the hitting champion, Luis Arise, had never, ever, ever focused on launch angle. Just kept his same old swing. That's a long story to say fads come, fads go in baseball and, frankly, in the church. I remember when I was young, one of the fads was bus ministries. You had to have a bus ministry. You had to bring people to the church. That's how you'll grow the church. Or it was door-to-door visitation with evangelism explosion. Great ministry, but it was a fad. Then there was coffee shop churches and lights and glitz. Fads. You can go back to the 19th century, and Charles Finney and his new measures, publicity and the anxious bench and all kinds of innovations that were fads. Things aren't necessarily bad. I mean, we have a website, that's publicity. We have lights, that's good. But if we're relying on those things to grow the church... We need to hear Jesus say again, drop the nets on the other side. That's where you're really going to catch the fish. Rely on me, my wisdom, my power, my plan. Keep preaching the word. Administer the sacraments. Pray. Jesus 
prospers his church. So we rely on Jesus, not our power, not our techniques. The fourth thing that you see in this unmistakably is Jesus extending compassion and forgiveness. Uh, Are there certain things, maybe smells, that take you back to a place? For me, if I smell rose-scented soaps, I'm in my grandma's house. Not particularly pleasant smell. Uh, If my wife sees or smells Quaker steak in lube, the wing place, she immediately goes back to pregnancy and morning sickness. John uses a really unique word to describe the fire that Jesus has waiting for the disciples. There's a very common word for fire, poor. That's not the one he uses. He uses the word anthrakia. It's a charcoal fire. He only uses it in two places. Once in John 18 to describe the fire that Peter was around when he denied Jesus three times, and here, a charcoal fire. Uh, What did Peter think when he comes up to the charcoal fire and smells the smoke, feels its warmth? Is he taken back to that place where he denied Jesus three times? I think so. But Jesus takes him to that place not to crush him with his shame, but to relieve him of it. I remember when I was in seminary, Ted's, Trinity Evangelical, um, we had to do this thing in the beginning of our enrollment there, fill out this kind of personal assessment, and then shortly, you know, a few months later, you went into one of the counseling students and had your personal assessment evaluated. Uh, It was their way of getting practice. Um, I was not thrilled about doing this at all, partly because you had to pay for it and it was a requirement. Uh, But I went in and we were evaluating my uh, assessment, kind of personality test thing, and this counseling student was probing about ministry and why I felt called to ministry and my background. And we got into this place where we were talking about my church growing up And the split that had happened, my dad was the pastor, how I felt incredibly betrayed by some of my close friends and their families, who I thought were close friends and families, and who left and were incredibly hurtful in this process. And I thought I had dealt with all that stuff. But as he took me back to that place, the hurt, the anger washed over me all again, and I'm not a crying guy usually. I was weeping. This poor counseling student bit off more than he could chew. (laughs) (laughs) That was healthy for me. I had to move past that before I could move forward into ministry. Peter did too. He had to move past his Betrayal, denial of Jesus. So Jesus takes him back to this place so that he can confront what he did. 
He asks him three times, do you love me? Corresponding to the three times that Peter had denied him. Sometimes we make a big deal about the different words for love that is used here. It's interesting, but I don't think that's really at the heart of what's going on here. I don't think there's really a difference in how John is using words for love. Agape, phileo. The emphasis isn't on the quality of Peter's love. The emphasis is on Jesus' compassion and forgiveness. Jesus says to him, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my lambs. Not, I forgive you, but sit on the sidelines. I forgive you, but you've disqualified yourself from service. I forgive you. Now go. I'm releasing you. I'm commissioning you to do Service for my kingdom, for my church. Jesus extends compassion and forgiveness. The church has to become a place where people receive Jesus' compassion and forgiveness. Notice what Jesus did not say. He didn't say to Peter, Peter, I saw what you did. He didn't say to Peter, I told you so. He didn't say to Peter, you despicable sinner. Do you love me? Jesus didn't feel the need to point out Peter's sin, to rub it in his face, but to forgive. Now that doesn't mean we don't speak of sin or call for repentance. But I think it does mean, and I think we really have to learn to leave space for the Holy Spirit to do the convicting work. We are not the voice of the Holy Spirit. We can certainly believe, certainly trust, that if God is calling someone to repentance, his spirit is already working ahead of us. Convicting. Working on the conscience. Jesus extended compassion and forgiveness, and the church becomes a place for people to receive that. Lastly, Jesus demonstrates himself that he remains the chief shepherd of his church. Jesus commands Peter. He's still Lord over Peter, still master over Peter. And he says, go out and feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. Not your sheep, Peter. Not your sheep, disciples. They're mine. It's my church. I am the chief shepherd. I delegate to you responsibility, but I remain its Lord. So what we do, we do mindfully in submission to the chief shepherd. 
there's, I think, a dual application here for pastors and leaders in the church and for congregation at large. Pastors, when, when we connect, when we get together with other pastors, leaders, when we get together with other leaders, uh, there's kind of a shorthand language. We talk about, oh, in my church we do this, or in my church we're running this number on Sunday mornings, or my church, my church. I've tried when I get together not to use that language, but to speak of the church I serve. I often get lazy and still call you guys my church. It's not my church. It's not Bob's church or Deontay's or Adam's or the elders. It's Christ's church. We don't own it. We don't control it. We are simply under shepherds of the chief shepherd. And I've seen this dynamic play out in a congregation too, where a congregation never here has said, oh, that pastor's ruined our church. Or that pastor's making changes in our church. Our church? No, it's Christ's church. You don't own it. You don't set the agenda. It's Christ's church. His agenda. His purpose. We love and we care for the church because it's Christ's church. And we love him. As followers of Christ, our lives individually and corporately, as followers of Jesus, our lives individually and corporately are rooted in Christ. What we teach, how we live, even how we die, should direct others to Christ's power, his wisdom, his goodness, his love, and his sufficiency. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that you do not leave us where you found us. You did not leave Peter in his, the shame of his denial. You restored him. You commissioned him. Father, you do not leave us as broken sinners. You heal us. You restore us. You enable us through the gifts of your Holy Spirit to serve in your church and to serve corporately as the church, your world. We pray that you would empower us to do that well so that Christ gets the glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.